Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Leveraging AI to Help Protect Our Children with returning special guest, Rachel Drykosen. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Darren. So glad to be back. Hey, Rachel, you and I have been working together for three years, four years now? Four years. Four years. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. And we got to work on a couple of projects together, but one that really is dear to our hearts. It's um, around uh, pr protecting children online and, um, and uh, protecting children against uh, child predators. So both dear to our heart. We've done a lot of uh, work in this case. And then you've recently writ written a paper on, uh, on the state of things in this. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Yeah. Awesome. Very, very excited to, very excited to share some updates there. So Rachel, before we get started with that um, deep topic, right? Um, tell everyone a little bit about yourself, your background. It's been a while since you've been on the show. It's been a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so um, people, people want to hear a, a little more about uh, what you've been doing and, and how you got to where you're at. Oh boy. I don't know if people actually want to hear it, but I'll tell you anyway, since you asked. Uh, so I, um, I am our, I'm currently a, a technical director for our state, local and education practice here at Intel in the sales and marketing group. And the charter there is to explore options for scaling with our partners, um, some new and innovative solutions alongside uh, movements in the policy and regulatory area. So we're acting not just as a um, technical instrument, uh, but also as a bellwether uh, for things to come uh, and helping our procurement agents, uh, as well as our strategists in, in state, local and education, uh, think, think a little more future proof uh, as they're selecting architectures and options for their digital infrastructure. Um, well, and you had a, you had an interesting way of coming to public sector. You did not start in public sector at all. In fact, being from Michigan, where would you guess you would have started? Of course, autom automobiles, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's where I got started. Um, I was born and raised in Michigan and uh, did a brief jaunt down to Texas uh, and it was too hot. So I came back specifically to work on auto and I did uh, automotive, um, you know, embedded automotive sales, both OEM and tier one and aftermarket stuff and you're just putting putting those black squares on the green board and making sure that hey we're 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 doing really cool stuff with with uh the latest and greatest at the you know capacitors power management you know and then I slowly crept into Intel because I wanted to work on uh, memory and storage for autonomous vehicles and that's how I started to get interested in the the policy piece of technology um, and some fine gentlemen in California uh, released something called autopilot, called it full self-driving and people started dying because they didn't realize they still had to keep their hands on 10 and two. I'm like, Hmm. So who's responsible? And, and, and be awake yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah, you have to, you have to <laughs> right. stay awake while you're driving your car. So yeah. Who's responsible when, when, a, when an autonomous vehicle crashes and, um, 
what safeguards should be in place and how do we make sure that the correct uh, policies are are structured so that they don't stifle innovation, but they're actually keeping people safer and we're demonstrably using tech in a thoughtful way. So that's how I got started thinking about the impact of regulation and policy. And I got super lucky that this role on the public sector team came up. Um, and four years ago, I came over and or no, five years ago, I came over. And ever since I've been having a blast. Well, and, and you've taken this whole idea of how policy can influence technology to the next level because you went back to school. Yes, exactly. Um, I am currently pursuing my master's of science in law at Northwestern. And this program, I cannot, I cannot say enough geek good things about it because it is, it is, I mean, the tagline is the intersection of business technology and law. And that is, might as well be on my resume. Like, that's what, that's what I want to work on. So it's a, it's a, they have a couple of different options. You can do it in person. You can do it um, part-time online hybrid and I have chosen to go the the part-time online route. And I just pick from this just gorgeous menu of classes and uh, biometric privacy policy, uh, which I just got through, uh, responsible data and artificial intelligence uh, that I took in January. Uh, visual communication, uh, just there's, it's an excellent, excellent program. It's really allowing me to, uh, peak my, you know, quench, quench my thirst for all these different uh, areas that might be applicable to our future. Well, what I find interesting is you've used that passion that you have for policy and technology to tackle a really tough problem that we're talking about today. And that is the um, prosecution and not just prosecution, but also uh, discovery and prosecution of uh, child predators on online child predators. Absolutely. Um, and surprisingly, when you brought me into this, I was shocked at how disorganized, um, the industry, I, you can't really call it an industry. It's just the jurisdictions in our government worldwide are completely discombobulated when it comes to technology and, and online crimes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, when I brought you into this particular project, uh, that was end of 21. So about two years ago at this point, and, yeah. um, I was not sure what the actual Intel play might be at the time, but the, I mean, th that's, that's the most important part in my mind is technology companies leaning in alongside law enforcement to, you know, not, not just come up with the technical solution, but come up with the language around the uniform language across different states and different municipalities that na on a national level, on a global scale, so that this is so that the, the actual prosecution is and the investigation is not stymied because of a technicality in the language. That's what I found most interesting. The technology to do some of the things that they needed, like chain of custody of evidence, for example, managing evidence, uh, digital evidence. I thought, oh, surely this is 
the technology is simple. Yeah. Why haven't we done this already? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it turns out that the technology is there, but the understanding on how to let, use that technology differs in every single jurisdiction, even in the same state. Oh, yeah. And I was like blown away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. I, yeah. I, something I did not understand at all. I think that that was pretty mind blowing for me, too, that the, you know, depending on which state you're in, the the evidence handling requirements uh, may be dictated by one house, one, one, one judge, one party here. Uh, and, you know, got to be careful what language I use when I'm talking about like law enforcement and regulatory stuff. House has one meaning, uh, but, you know, depending on where you're at, um, the meaning of the same word can be entirely different. And it can mean, it can be, it can be the difference between, oh, you know, slap on the wrist and, you know, don't do that again. Uh, and 10 years in jail, um, same word, different meaning. So it's really important to, you know, as you're trying to solve problems in this arena, that the language and that awareness is a part of the campaign. So I, I love how you brought awareness in there. I think uh, awareness is probably one of the things we overlook the most when we're trying to deploy new technologies or new solutions into a, uh, a space that we haven't done before. So how do you go about, how do you go about doing that when you've, when you've got um, something like, and I don't know if this is an industry jurisdiction evidence management. I, is that an, an industry? Uh, say more, say more about that. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering, because when we tackled this problem, we were, we were tackling the problem of how do you, how do I handle evidence of child pornography? Um, how do I handle that evidence? Because it's illegal to look at child pornography. Oh yeah. It's illegal to transport it. There's lots of rules around it. Thank goodness. Yes. But how do I handle this um, evidence that's digital evidence? How do I make sure it's not tampered with? How do I make sure that um, the victims are not re-victimized yeah. um, by it getting loose? Um, there's all these problems that arise but how do i how do i teach awareness to law enforcement and to the judicial part of uh, um, our governments um what is available out there today that will protect Th that to me was the hardest part was the awareness part yeah so how do we go about doing that broadly because like you said depending on a judge, a judge can make these determinations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, so it's, it's very hard. It is very hard. And I, I don't have, I don't have a solution for that yet. I have lots of, uh, lots of speculation. Um, and the research I've done, uh, so far is indicated that, you know, there, there's really not an easy way to build that awareness. And um, where there's still, I mean, there, there's still challenges around um, differences in in judicial philosophy that would say, "Hey, we're going to look at how the original, you know, language was structured, and we're going to ignore um, anything that's anything that we're trying to be fed right now." So, unless we've got active interest from 
that that judicial system unless we've got active interest from the uh, prosecutor's office to and unless they've so they've got to have that willingness and interest to solve the problem and they've also got to have the bandwidth and the resources to address the problem which is something that I'd really I go into a little bit in um, the paper that I wrote that that we're referencing today you know we've got we've got in my, my statistic of, you know, hey, in 1998, when the when the cyber tip line was set up by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, uh, you know, they said, hey, please, if you if, if you are seeing uh, in any incidences of child pornography, report it here. And in 1998, they received north of you know 4,500 reports. And as technology evolved and adv- advanced. Um, as people became more aware of that reporting line, and as uh, the perpetrators of that illicit material also got smarter uh, and were able to move faster because they weren't encumbered by red tape, that that number ballooned to 32 million in 2022. I mean, there's, and you know, how many. So you you think that you think that's due to the ease or the awareness that people have? I can report something, and also the bad guys are are generating more of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I and I I'd, I pull I'd pull up the statistic too because it's it's not just it's not like it's there's a lot of repeat content right that's repurposed, and uh, that's where AI tools are in use right now. I mean that that's part of why it's thirty two million. Because these AI tools that are deployed by AWS or Facebook or whomever else or Google or whomever else, you know, they're on you know, public platforms. They've got the ability to automate that scanning of some of this content. You know, so they're able to automate those reports to some extent. But once you hit the, the folks that need to validate, the folks on the law enforcement side that need to validate it and say, oh, yes, this is... This is what I thought. This is child pornography. This is an, an illicit image um, of a minor that is not, you know, just oh, a you know, mom taking a picture of her toddler in the bathtub, or um, you know, consensual sex among adults. The that is, you know, perfectly. Le- I don't want to see it, but it's perfectly legal. Like once it hits the people that need to validate it, those tools are not, you know, one technically not mature enough to handle that task. There's got to be a human in the loop. And that, that job is traumatizing, you know? So, yeah. Do do you think we'll get to the point where AI will be able to do that more readily and, and react faster? Because once something's up there and been reported, it could be weeks or months before any investigations. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that site could have been taken down or moved on. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. Oh right? yeah, I mean. So, for sure, keep going. Sorry. No, no, no. So I'm just guessing. I mean, are the AI tools are they getting closer now where they can turn things around faster uh, without a human in the loop? Are can we can we train the AIs to to do a better job? Parts. I have a two-part answer for that. Uh, one, 
I don't ever want, I don't ever want no human in the loop when it comes to making a decision about whether or not a person goes to jail or not. Um, I think that that's going to continue to be. Oh, thank you for saying that out loud, Rachel. (laughs) It's, 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 that's, that's way too scary and that's not appropriate. Like we need, whether or not the tool is flawless, perfect, um, whatever we having a human in the loop to be accountable for somebody's livelihood, uh, whether or not someone goes to jail. I mean, that's, that's gotta be a piece. So that the question is not, can the AI take over, but like how much faster can the AI make it for us? Um, how much, how much can the AI protect the, the analyst who's got to go through and look at this stuff and that verify how harmful it is. You know, how much can that AI actually say, okay, that looks just like that other thing. So I'm going to blur it um, and, you know, indicate that, all right, that's pretty similar to this um, or, Hey, we've definitely already, this is the same fingerprint as one we've already seen. It's the same yeah, image. So, so right. we'll just, right. yeah. Um, but how much can, how much can we prevent that revictimization of those children? Uh, how much can uh, we speed through that process uh, and then reduce the trauma incurred on the extremely brave people that are investing their, I mean, that are that are also being vicariously traumatized by going through this kind of material. Right. So. I, I, it just crossed my mind at the same time that we can improve these tools, right? That can do a better job at classification. Are we going to start seeing um, generated images? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and is there any law? Have, have you read any policies or laws around? Well, it's not a real person, so it doesn't. Yeah. It's not child pornography. That's an interesting question. I saw something in uh, Louisiana, out of Louisiana earlier this year that was along those lines. Um, You know, hey, if it's an image of a child, it's still a child. Um, But I think that one's still to to be determined because it's (laughs) the tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, doesn't make a sound. If someone creates child pornography that is not actually a, a real person, is there any harm? I I refuse to comment on that because that's just disgusting. Yeah, no, I I agree. So, um, but you you can see where AI is now can be used for absolutely in in both of these cases. So that's something that we have to do. We legislate that. Do we regulate that? Do we educate? Um, well, I think that I think there's a couple of a couple of things to look at because. You can legislate. You can legislate in one spot. You could legislate federally, uh, and to try to co- accomplish prevention of harm. Um, and then everybody here says, "Oh, well, we'll, we'll just move our stuff to Russia because um, CSAM child sexual assault material or abuse material CSAM's decriminalized in Russia. So let's just move them to those servers. Um, so unless there's a Unless there's a uniform agreement, and I don't, I don't know that we ever get a uniform global agreement on that language of what is 
permissible and what is not permissible. Um, I think we're gonna we're gonna be hamstrung for a long time. Um, but but we is is there any movement in in getting a global um, policy or global yeah, laws yeah, around, there is. around um, this? So so this this organization um, in hope uh, that um, that I became aware of via uh, one of the partners that that we're working with um, for our project. Uh, they have a they just launched a universal classification schema for categorizing uh, different images. And the hope is that that gets fed to that the intent is that that gets fed into uh, artificially intelligent models so that they can um, assist along this along this uh, investigative path. Uh, and that is I think they're headquartered out of the Netherlands, which used to have like the largest concentration of uh, child pornography uh, you know, being hosted, not, not on purpose, but, you know, it just because because of the the language the language in the laws um you know now now it's different so between uh, the organization in the netherlands um the us is a big is a founding partner of this this organization um there's absolutely a global effort there's there's to and i forget there's 100 plus countries that have analysts tied directly to in hope and that's capital I, capital N, hope, H-O-P-E. Um, there's there's more than 100 countries that are that are involved in this, um, trying to conquer this this problem. Because again, it's all right. So that's that's some great really news, exciting. right? And 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 the technology, like you said, because AI is so much more advanced now, I can pass in these normalized classifications, which will which will be yeah. changing. But I can pass those into AI models so that a majority of the work can be done by the AI models. Hopefully, yeah. The majority of that and work can be done. Sort, it can be classified, identified. Um, and then even in some cases, you know, so if, 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 if the language will allow, um, can like triangulate locations, you know, based on repeat images and associate with known perpetrators uh, there's the possibilities for what can be done because you know, right now it's just like, a, you know, trying to shovel the sidewalk while it's a blizzard. So the possibilities of what can be done when we take full advantage of these tools, it's like being able to finally like take a breath and clear that sidewalk a little bit so people can walk. Are, are you starting to see organizations like Interpol, FBI, uh, DOJ starting to work together um, technology-wise to, because they, these these child pornographers, they're spanning the globe, right? And like you said, they're just going to move to another server or whatever. Are we starting to see these um, global um, uh, police organizations work together and collaborate and share technology to help catch these these um, perpetrators, absolutely. I mean, absolutely seeing the the interest, the head nodding, the the ambition to do it. Um, still faced with the the challenge of 
lots of ingrained um you know everybody acknowledges it's a big problem everybody in all these organizations are trying to like work together band together to get something done uh so that's definitely happening. That's exciting. There's just a lot of a lot of hurdles around who gets to you know, who's on first. Who gets to dictate what that actually what the definitions actually are, and who's going to pay for it? Because um, after all, you know, I don't want my tax pay my tax dollars being spent on something that I'm that we're not sure is going to work. There's certainly politics around. Um, defunding the police, which is heartbreaking, especially in for issues like like what we're talking about. Um, I mean, yeah, they're we're they're they're putting their heads together to come up with a solution, but you know who's who is going to who is going to execute? Who's going to pay for that execution? That I, that really concerns me. Yeah. So let's talk about technical sure. barriers. Do you? Are there any technical barriers that you're seeing with um, these organizations working together and coordinating together? Or is it all political or policy and process problems? Well, so, I mean, a lot of them are political and process problems. Um, and if you'll permit me to give one more example of that before I go into the technical. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, Apple had launched or had announced that they were going to detect uh, anything that was on iCloud. It was like 18 months ago. They said they were going to do, um, they were going to do CSAM detection in iCloud. And 18 months later, they're like, never mind, we're not doing this because um, the technology is not quite there. And this, this is, or excuse me, the technology is close enough that we could potentially detect thing, detect and flag things. Um, but after a couple incidences of people having their accounts flagged for pictures they were taking uh, to send to their doctor. Um, for example, their, their three-year-old son having a rash in his groin. Um, the public outcry was like, stop. I can't lose my entire digital life. You can't lock down my accounts because you there was a false net or a false positive. So that's both I guess that's both a that I guess that is a tech technology issue. That technology actually has to be close. Yeah, that's a technology yeah. issue then. Um, but it's hard it's hard for an ai to discover intent yeah yeah and right so there's still some limitations on the technology side it sounds like on detection, on detection. yeah um classification certainly but easier what about but... well yeah oh okay and, and and so what about yeah on the prosecution side um the big hang up that we ran into was not a technical one, but it was a education of um, politicians and judges on what's capable for protecting evidence. Yeah, that's a, that's another really um, good point. I mean, when we think about when we think about the when we think about the evidence handling specifically, the the known process of physically hand carrying this stuff that nobody, this, this CSAM that nobody is supposed to handle, you know, it's a felony to do so. Um, and you think about hand carrying a, a hard drive or a mobile phone that you suspect has this evidence and there's only, 
four people in the state that are qualified to analyze it. Uh, not only are they those, not only is it them being qualified to analyze it, uh, but also they they're the ones that have the equipment to deal with it. So, right. So uh, that system, though it is slow, is what has been known. The software that manages those case files and after that the image of that hard drive is extracted, that software has been in place as a standard for a long time. And that's, it's again, the way that uh, an officer processes their case, um, the way that the digital anal the forensic analyst processes their case, the case, um, the language they use, how they tag things, uh, how they're putting their notes in. That's, it's not necessarily Uniform. It's not like a you know you and I get into a spreadsheet. We click a button. We say ah red, blue, green, and those are the only three options. You know, it's free text, and it's the same problem that um, when when we talk about health electronic medical records. You know how how do we like, you know, define uniform thresholds so we can share information across across boundaries here. Yeah, that's what I found most interesting was that the sharing of information across boundaries was zero. Zero, zero because there's zero. So if I have a if I have a serial um, perpetrator that's crossing multiple jurisdictions, I have no idea. Yeah, there's there, there's no way to correlate right. that data safely. I mean, because it's and to your point, you know, but what we've been working on has been much more specific to the securing that evidence handling the way that it's the way that it's handled today because you're not supposed to share because there's we can't just like send you here's here's your email here's your attachment no instantly to jail do not pass go yeah Yeah. (laughs) um no how how do we get through how does law enforcement get through those those hoops, so to speak, in a way that they can guarantee to the judge, hey, this was handled properly according to uh, according to the rules that have been set forth for the handling of our most sensitive types of evidence. I mean, those laws were not designed for the evidence handling was designed for the handling of physical physical evidence. And we're still we're seeing stuff evolve not to handle the digital stuff, but. How do how do you teach how do you teach somebody with no technical background what's what's more secure from a cyber standpoint? How what do we do? Do do, do you think? I mean, eventually this will change. It, oh, it yeah. has to as as judges and um, lawmakers become more educated on uh, the capabilities. Um, but we as technologists, we need to push harder. Uh, from my perspective, we need to be actively out there educating, actively out there um, helping our judicial system worldwide understand the art of the possible and that we can protect um, people and data at the, at the same time. I agree. Um, that's, so. part of, that's part of why I get so geeked about the program I'm in is to, to serve in a translational role where, you know, I've got yeah, you're in a, you're in a really critical. Role. I'm hoping so. Um, this ha- being able to have this conversation, being able to speak the language of both sides of the fence, or you know, multiple sides of the party, 
um, you know, to serve as a negotiator and mediator uh, as we figure out what makes sense. And it takes a long time to reach consensus on stuff, especially if you're speaking German and I'm speaking Mandarin. Like we've got to, we've got to find common. Yeah. Yeah. I can't yeah even we've got to find a common way to like say, no, we're talking about the same thing. What is our, what is our end objective? If our end objective is to keep children safe and prevent the spread of we're without getting into like political theory, right? We're not, we're not going to stop 100% of everything, but how can we keep children safer? How can we deter criminals from acting in this direction? Um, if that's our common goal, great. Now let's, let's translate between like, all right, here's what's technically feasible, technically possible. Here's how fast we can get it done. Here's how much it's going to cost. And how do we write that into the language faster than waiting for the next political administration to get hired in and want to make changes? Yeah. Rachel, fa fascinating uh, topic today. Um, I think you're the really, I, we don't really talk about policy and people nearly en enough on the show. So thank you for your insight today. No, you're welcome. It. Anytime, Darren. It's a pleasure to get back together on, on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.